Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. I was following the I was following the On today's program, I'll take you with to the Museum of Contemporary Art to see a new Caribbean art exhibition called Forecast Form. I caught up with the curator, Carla Acevedo-Yates. The dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel, will join me to review the new Goodman Theater play, The Ripple, The Wave That Carried Me Home. Later in the show, I'll sit down with celebrated theater director Steve Scott, who's helming a new production of a play that imagines what a pre-fame Andy Warhol might have been like. And I'll talk to filmmaker James Morosini about his semi-autobiographical cringe comedy, I Love My Dad. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. A new exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art is offering a fresh perspective on Caribbean art. Forecast Forum, Art in the Caribbean Diaspora 1990s to Today, features works from a diverse group of 37 artists. MCA curator Carla Acevedo-Yates was interested in challenging conventional ideas about the region. I recently visited the museum and caught up with Acevedo-Yates to talk about her connections to the Caribbean diaspora. What was the starting point for what turned into forecast form? So it's actually a really long process. I was actually born and raised in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and um, very interested in group exhibitions that are showing artists from the Caribbean, both in the region and also in the United States and in Europe. So it's a process of a lot of uh, dialogues with artists, um, seeing exhibitions both in Puerto Rico, in the United States, in Spain, for example. So it's difficult to pinpoint where this show existed or where it started to come together. But I would say that after Hurricane Maria, the show really started to take its actual form, really thinking about the relationship between the diasporic communities and the Caribbean region. So Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico in the fall of 2017. What was it about that event that spurred the development of this project? I think it was the experience, a very personal experience of, of being here in the United States and having family down on the island and what that means to be in two places at once, to be here, but also to be there and to watch the news, the hurricane path or the track and the form that the hurricane takes, the circular form and how it travels from West Africa to the Caribbean. So it's this like traveling form that impacts a whole region, both culturally, socially, politically. And um, there was an important conversation that I had with artist Deborah Jack, whose work you saw in the exhibition. That was also an important moment for me to really think about these ideas around form and history because for her, the form of the hurricane itself and its trajectory as it travels from West Africa to the Caribbean and to the Americas is a manifestation of trauma from the transatlantic slave trade and that really made an impact on me because it's a way of the natural world or the environment to speak to ideas around colonialism, around racial violence and so on. So that that together with a lot of 
personal experiences, research led to the form that the show actually took. It had, I would say, different iterations throughout the years, but it ended up being something where I wanted diaspora to be a real focus. So as you can probably tell by the title, the show really is thinking about diaspora as a way to understand the Caribbean from a really broad perspective, but it's also a way to analyze artwork. So it's really working in, in different registers. Right. So as far as the, the different registers, the title of the exhibit automatically brought to mind weather for me, not knowing anything about forecast form. Uh, the word forecast uh, made me think of like weather events and you referenced Hurricane Maria. In a way, you're using weather occurrences in parallel with other historical events and developments that have taken place in the region. Yeah, so the concept of weather is coming from a personal experience of both growing up with hurricanes as this phenomenon that you grow up in the Caribbean. It's something that you, every year you have to prepare for. So there's six months of hurricane season out of the year for in the Caribbean. It comes from the personal experience of being in the United States and seeing Hurricane Maria in particular in 2017. But... It also is thinking about how, you know, the trade winds facilitated colonialism. So it's really weather as this way of understanding certain historical forces. So how not to separate the environment and certain natural phenomenons from history, from the historical forces that have shaped the modern world. Situated between North and South America, in the Caribbean Sea, the region is home to an eclectic array of cultures. Acevedo Yates wasn't interested in representing each and every Caribbean community. She's more interested in the constant changes and movement that exist in the region. So the unifying concept is diaspora. It can exist in the biography of the artist, but it could also exist in the work itself. So diaspora is a way to think about works through processes of exchange, movement, transformation, and dispersal. And one thing through my research that I found, so again, thinking about this 90s moment, was that when the Caribbean group exhibition emerged in the early 90s, there was a, a sense that the folks that were organizing those exhibitions, and to a certain extent that still happens today, there's an impulse to want to represent the region, which means like one artist or two from each island. So there's like an impulse to want to do that. And that's something that I really wanted to avoid. So sometimes people ask me like, oh, is there an artist from Venezuela? Is there an artist from San Bart's? So that's not what the show is trying to do, because I think that representing the Caribbean is basically impossible. It's like a, a borderless geography. And that's kind of at the crux of the argument of the show. It's that representing the region or what the Caribbean is, is an impossibility. So one of the things that I really stress when I speak with people about the show, it's at a very subjective approach to the Caribbean. And um, some of these exhibitions that are major exhibitions on art in the Caribbean often try to um, be extremely didactic and be very representational in the sense that every single language and ethnic region is represented or every colonial area is represented. And um, I think that sometimes the artwork gets lost along the way because there's more of a historical um, angle to the exhibition that is highlighted more so than the art object. 
So this is the, the type of exhibit that you could put in any museum around the world. Did you think at all about like local connections to the city of Chicago? Yeah, so one local connection is that the city was first settled by a Haitian man, Jean-Baptiste de Sable. So that's like the kind of Caribbean roots connection. Of course, um, Chicago is home to one of the largest Puerto Rican communities in the U.S. So there's that connection in the sense that always Chicago has been this place of migration and exchange and even if the show is about art in the Caribbean and, and thinking about ideas around the history of the Caribbean, colonialism, pre-capitalist societies, and so on, I think the show also appeals to um, you know, folks that have moved away from home, that um, find themselves migrating to a new place. So there's a lot about um, diaspora that relates to like, a larger human experience of, of migrating. If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. My name is Gary Zydek, and I'm talking with MCA curator Carla Acevedo Yates. We're talking about her new exhibit, Forecast Form Art in the Caribbean Diaspora, 1990s to Today. She says the 90s served more as a backdrop than a starting point. Actually, it's a way to think about group exhibitions and major exhibitions in general, sometimes when they have this retrospective look they tend to do it through a particular decade or a starting point. So in, in this case, it would be the 90s to the present. But in this show in particular, the 90s is a moment to think about works that were done before and after the 90s. So I'm taking the 90s as a pivotal decade, both for the cultural context of the Caribbean. So it's the 90s was the decade of the Cancentennial, for example. So in 1992 in Puerto Rico and elsewhere in the region, there were a lot of cultural activities that happened around the so-called discovery of the Americas. So that brought about a type of you know, cultural effervescence that was very problematic. So it's about the 90s um, era of identity politics, for example. It's an era where we saw the emergence of the Caribbean group exhibition as a way to make Caribbean art global, so to speak. But it was also, you know, a time where a lot of different things were coming together in the region. It was a very complex time culturally, both in the discourse, um, but also institutionally. So it's, it's looking at this era that really shaped artistic practice, but it's looking at artworks that were created before and using this 90s moment as a way to understand them today. Given some of the, the themes you were interested in exploring, how would you describe your curation process for putting the exhibit together? So it's it's a very complex process in the sense that um, there's certain artists that I knew that I wanted to work with, and there's other artists that I discovered along the way. And how I work as a curator is that I don't usually start with this big idea and then find artists to illustrate it or to represent these ideas. I would say that this exhibition is a product of of a lot of conversations that have happened in the past seven or eight years. And a lot of the ideas that are coming through the show and a lot of the themes are coming from the artworks themselves and are coming from those conversations I've had with artists. It's a process where a lot of things are added along the way. There's artists that have introduced me to other artists. 
In the case of Cosmo White, for example, um, Ebony Patterson introduced me to his work. Uh, and there's artists from Chicago, of course, like Ebony and Candida Alvarez. There's also the process of seeing other exhibitions that have impacted the show. It's just a, a process of selection. A mix of paintings, sculptures, and video works create an immersive exhibit environment. Acevedo Yates was intentional in the mediums she chose for the exhibit. I think that's part of my curatorial process. It's like not just hanging artworks on the wall. It's like how do you create an experience and that is manifested or created through the different types of mediums included. I did also hire an architectural firm from Panama City to work on the show. So we worked together to create these very... Um, minimal but powerful architectural interventions made out of plywood that exist both at the beginning and at the end of the show. But also through lighting. Lighting is very important to create an atmosphere, to create an experience of the show. And as you walk through the exhibition, there are moments where the gallery is a little darker and there's more video or more sound. There, there are moments where it's a little lighter. There's a light sculpture that has a very particular glow that is reflected on some of the other works. So there's there are very intentional and deliberate gestures that come from a curatorial perspective to build an experience for the show. And I'm always saying that the show has a beginning and an end. And in that way, it's very narrative. I do come from a literature background as well as art history, so that for me is very important. But again, it's not just about hanging artworks on the wall individually. It's how all of these artworks are working together within this constellation of knowledge and of movement to create an experience for a visitor. Also of note, Forecast Forum represents a significant development at the MCA as the institution transitions into a fully bilingual museum. The exhibit's written content and labels are all in English and Spanish. This is the second fully bilingual exhibition and the first major exhibition, and it marks the MCA's transition into a fully bilingual institution. And does that mean something to you on a personal level? It's very, very meaningful because since I started here at the 2019, it was really important for me to bring that into the institution, thinking about the demographics of Chicago, thinking about the growing Latinx demographics of this country. And of course, I'm a native Spanish speaker. So for me, that is a very important part of my work that I bring to the institution. Ultimately, Acevedo Yates hopes visitors leave the exhibit with some new ideas and questions about a region of the world that's sometimes overlooked. I'm hoping that, that they gain a larger understanding of how complex the region is. And hopefully when they visit, if they do, that they would want to know about the history of the place that they visit. Because oftentimes when we think of the Caribbean, especially from a U.S. and European perspective, people oftentimes go for vacation and they think of the tropical landscape and the beauty of the landscape. But one of the main ideas of the show is like what lies beneath that beauty? You know, what hides and lies beneath the beauty of the landscape, which is something that Ebony Patterson does so beautifully in her work. And oftentimes there are very painful colonial histories that are hidden within that lush, verdant landscape. And that's something that, you know, for me has been really important in thinking about the show and what people might take away from the exhibition. That's Carla Acevedo Yates. She's the curator of the Museum of Contemporary Art's new exhibition, Forecast Form, Art in the Caribbean Diaspora, 1990s to Today. It'll be on display at the MCA through April 23rd. You can find more information at mcachicago.org.
And a quick reminder, if you like listening to the Arts Section Sunday mornings, make sure to visit the program's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find additional content and archived episodes and individual features that you can listen to anytime you want, plus lots of pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm joined now by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanal. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. Jonathan's back from assignment. I think he's got a, I, he's got a I tan. I am back, and, and I want to wish everyone a happy new year. I know it's almost February. Well, the Lunar New Year was just a week ago, yeah. so you're still in time. It yeah. was the year of... The year of the rabbit. I'm right. in the year of the rabbit. Good to have you back. Family dynamics, swimming segregation, and political inheritance are among the themes explored in Christina Anderson's play, The Ripple, the Wave That Carried Me Home. Now being presented by the Goodman Theater, the play focuses on a black Kansas family, specifically daughter Janice's relationship with her parents. And Jonathan, we'll start with you. Uh, kids always do what their parents want, right? Even as they, they get older. <laughs> sure, right. <laughs> Good luck to you. <laughs> you you have a, a a son who is still very much doing what parents want. We'll see how long that. <laughs> you know, many things can break the bond between parents and children, especially as children approach adulthood and begin to make their own choices, and you still have a few years until that happens, Gary. But, you know, perhaps it's a career choice or a relationship choice that uh, separates uh, parents and, and the child. Perhaps it's politics or religious belief. I'm old enough to remember families that split over the uh, war in Vietnam. Perhaps it's simply a break in trust of some kind. The generational split has been the theme of I don't know, countless plays going back to the Greeks. And it is the theme of this very effective new play by Christina Anderson. And it's a play which also benefits from a wonderful production, astute direction, and a first-rate cast who are both powerful and also at the same time charming. Uh, Now it shifts back and forth between the 1960s and 1992, and the story centers on Janice Collins Clifton, an Ohio wife and mother with a career in college administration, but whose parents were leaders in the civil rights movement of the 1960s back in her Kansas hometown. Now, their specific issue in their landlocked state, Kansas, and the landlocked city, was the integration of the city's three public swimming pools, not only for recreational purposes, but also to teach black children how to swim, which is, uh, it can open a door to many, many different things. Um, the issue of water politics, which is what the playwright dubs it, um, mm-hmm. the issue of water politics is played out for us in ample backstory detail, and it's really more complicated than it sounds. It leads eventually to a violent split between Janice and her father, when Janice is 17, and frustrated by what she calls 
that countless times they chose the movement instead of me. When she tells her dad that his fight isn't her fight, she rejects almost everything her parents have valued. Now, nearly 20 years later, in 1992, her father dead for some years, Janice returns to Kansas to speak at a ceremony renaming the town's now long-integrated community swimming center in her dad's honor. And uh, one of the questions is, will this bring her any kind of resolution? Uh, that's kind of the summary of, the, of the, the, the plot and maybe some of the themes. Carrie, did I miss anything there? I think, well, you might have, but only because I think there's so very much in this play, which is not to say that I feel like it's in, in any way overstuffed. What I very much admire about this production and the script and the direction and the performances, which I find <laughs> are all working, and, and I, if I dare make a synchronized swimming joke, please please forgive me, um, to really bring out the nuances of what's going on. There's class nuances. Yes. Uh, Janice's mother, Helen, is, co- is described as being of the thinking blacks, more the, uh, you know, the, the middle class, still very segregated in their town in Kansas, but uh, her grandfather... Helen, the mother Helen, her father's had started the swimming program at the pool that was blacks only. So that's sort of the the impetus for them to get involved in the water politics. Whereas her father, Edwin, is what's called the necessity of blacks, as in they're the working class, the people who work for the bare necessity. So there's that sort of interracial class conflict. There's the different ways in which oppression, a racially based oppression, hits women versus what perhaps men endure. There's a very harrowing scene, which I won't give away the details of, but uh, that involves Helen and uh, driving her daughter Janice home from a swim session. A swim session, it should be noted, that they can only do at one of the nicer pools in town before any of the white people get there. The manager kind of is nice enough to let them in, but obviously cannot let people know that black people are swimming in the pool. The horror, you know. And, and on their way home, they have an encounter which very much changes their relationship and which you get the sense kind of scars both of them. And it's uh, an encounter that plays out perhaps differently than it would have if Janice's father had been in the car. So there's a lot of different, you know, uh, levels to this. I was struck as I was watching this play. I have a friend of many years who grew up in Kansas, and her parents are very active in the civil rights movement there. And when she was a young child, she was taken on, you know, marches outside segregated department stores. And she wrote a performance piece that I saw several years ago about the toll of that and what it was like, you know, then knowing that her parents had suffered trauma, racial trauma, and that that kind of in some ways shut them off from things that she was going through. And I think that same kind of spirit, that same kind of question, that same kind of anguish in some ways is at the heart of this play, yet it is not purely about trauma, and I think that's what's so beautiful. It's about how people carry on. And indeed, the title, I think, don't, I would think you would agree, Jonathan, kind of hints at that, you know, that, that there is this energy, there is this flow, there is this love with all these characters. It's, no pun intended, in this play that's about segregation, it's not purely black or white. Yeah, it's not, um, and, and I would even say that thematically it's the play about uh, Gary, as you said, about differences and splits between generations, between legacy, between family heritage, uh, and that is, uh, you know, that that is non-race specific. That applies to all of us folks who consider ourselves part of the human race. And there are three of us having this conversation. At least two of us qualify for that. Um, <laughs> all right, that was my lame attempt at a joke. <laughs> Ms. Anderson has written a very lovely play, and she uses water as a symbol throughout it, 
in various ways, some amusing and some uh, uh, serious. And she balances humor and warmth. She uses humor and warmth to balance against the serious elements of the play. The director is Jackson Gay, who's not a Chicagoan, uh, new to me, but has great credentials. And she has given The Ripple an intimate production in the Goodman's smaller theater, assisted by really lovely scenic and lighting designs, which smoothly help define the various shifts in time. Uh, there's a small ensemble cast. There are only four actors. Uh, the cast is entirely effective, and it's headed by the outstanding Christiana Clark as Janice, who is expressive and nuanced, a word that you've already used, Carrie, and I agree with. Uh, Christiana Clark is expressive and nuanced in face and movement and voice, in my humble opinion. And Chicago actor Brianna Buckley, we should point out this is a co-production with Berkeley Rep, and the show did already play at Berkeley this fall. Brianna Buckley, who is, who is a Chicago-based actor, but it was in the Berkeley Rep production, returns here in a, in a number of supporting roles, including Janice's aunt, Gail, who is quite a pistol, <laughs> and, the, uh, and the, the wonderfully named young, chipper, ambitious black woman, who is the person with the beacon, sort of the black historical society, who keeps leaving messages for Janice begging her to come and do this thing. The other part of this play that's in the backdrop but is still very much present as part of the story is that it, it, the story it goes up to 1992, and it's playing against the backdrop of the, the, uh, the trials of the policeman who beat Rodney King. So there is a sense of, do we keep reliving this history? You know, at one point, Janice's father uses a line that uh, in, the, in the 60s that Gail then uses the, the aunt in 92, saying, is this your first time in America? Let me show you around, <laughs> you know, the whole idea of being yeah. shocked that brutality happens. So it's a little bit of gallows humor, but I think it also suggests some of the ways, the modes of survival that this family in particular and that black Americans in general have adopted in order to keep moving forward and to keep trying to fight. Yes, the, I agree with you, Jonathan. The fight to desegregate the pool, uh, the pools, I should say, you know, is, is a smaller part of that, and it's more of a plot device, although there is some, uh, some lovely information about you know the the symbolism of the public yeah. pool, right up to the point where in the in the program they mentioned when Mr. Rogers and the black policeman sat and you know cooled their feet together in the same wading pool. That was a big moment on television. The idea that blacks and whites could share the water has been this huge issue, including, of course, in Chicago's own history, the 1919 race riot that began when a young black boy sort of floated over from the black side of. But the invisible line on the beach to the white side and was, well, and was the, stoned the, to death or the, stoned the, to the, the point where he drowned. The invisible line in the water. Actually. The invisible line not in the water. Yeah, it's beach. not even a line in the sand. Exactly. No. Um, so, yeah, that I mean, obviously, I think that's one reason Christine Anderson chose that, because it is a very powerful and enduring story through the history of desegregation. But I think it's also because water, you know, I was thinking while watching this about colored water at Victory Gardens, the last play they did. You know, water is a source of comfort. Also, water is a source of, in that case, because it's set in Flint, Michigan during the water crisis, you know, as a source of something that's disruptive or dangerous. And um, I think that that metaphor, water is a very powerful metaphor. And what I appreciate about Christine Anderson's play is that it's very present, but nothing felt self-conscious to me. I think it's so rooted in these characters, and as you noted, Jonathan, in the relationships, generational and otherwise, that are happening yeah. among all of them, that it yeah, really like felt... It felt earned. I don't know how to express it maybe any better way, but I believed these characters. I I was taken on their journey, 
and I felt myself, you know, very moved emotionally by the by the conclusion of it. So I think it's it, I think it's an excellent excellent production yeah. for the Goodman to be kicking off 2023 with. Yeah, I think so also. And uh, you know, the issue of water politics is still with us, not just in Flint, Michigan, but it's in the news currently, and you know, in Jackson, Mississippi, absolutely water politics going on, and uh, and even in you know South Suburban Dalton with its long-running water problems uh, that, uh, you know, and, and it's difficult to say who is to blame or who is responsible for those things, but the politics of water, whether it's a swimming pool or, uh, you know, having to boil your water before you can drink it or cook with it or mm-hmm. anything like that. Uh, you know, I also like the interplay between the women in this play. Absolutely. That is not the primary thing about it, but between Janice and her mother, Janice and her aunt, those the women of the older generation, and eventually mm-hmm. her her recognition that the younger woman, the young, super <laughs> ambitious black woman, who is not at all unlike Janice herself. And it's a nice interplay. It's secondary to the play. Absolutely. But it's there. But it's right. there. And it has both emotional power and charm. This is a really good season opener for the Goodman, the ripple, the wave that carries me home. I found it uh, a, a tender play. Mm. Tender in is a so, very good word. There's a beautiful in, in moment. Ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, mean, yeah. I don't think this is giving anything away, but Janice does fly home. You know, his flying home, and this is when the verdict and the cops have been, you know, uh, acquitted in the Rodney a- King after the Rodney incident. King case. Yeah. And she's the only black person on the plane. And so when she meet, you know, the when she and the young, ambitious, chipper black woman have this almost wordless embrace. That's just like yeah. this speaks everything about what they're feeling, like being isolated and making connection, and it's just, it, it, it was just beautifully handled, and, and really, I think, gives insight into what it's like day-to-day to be going through, you know, the world, trying to take care of your business, but always having in the background this understanding that your civil rights are not as valued as perhaps other people's are. I think there's one other element, too. It is, it is not specifically stated, but at least I, I carry it away. Uh, when I said it's a tender play, it's, among other things, a reminder that we have only a limited amount of time right. to make things right with those we love, because eventually people die. Mm-hmm. And we'll regret it if we don't make the effort to make things right while we have time to do it, while we can. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, because there have been a number, uh, there have been other things that I've seen that have also addressed the idea of what it's like to be the child of activists. And what Janice says, like, you've given more to the movement than you ever gave to me. There was a movie that came out, oh gosh, in the 80s, and I cannot remember the name of the couple, but they were a white couple that was very active in the apartheid movement, in South, uh, the anti-apartheid movement, I should say, and they kept getting arrested. It's, from, it's called The World Apart, and it's from the child's point of view. And she also, she also, in that film, as I very strongly remember, although I saw it many years ago, at one point says to her mother, like, your job is, basically, your job is to take care of me, and you care for everybody else, but then you go to jail, and who's taking care of me? You know, so it, it doesn't get quite that extreme in the ripple of the wave, but you do get a sense that when you're committed to activism and you're committed to your family, the, the edges start to fray. It's not it's not easy to try to to balance those things, and sometimes you lash out or distance yourself from the people that you should be most connected to. 
This is more of a, a surface level question, but is water part of the set design? Is there a pool that's part of this? Yes, there is. It's an old. It looks like an old abandoned pool set that is uh, center let's, stage. Let's not, let's not give it all away. But we won't give everything away. But the set is the set is designed as like a, a public pool kind of forum, and then everything takes place on that. That's all I'm going to say. It reminded me of going into the Broadway Armory or or any other wet area in a high school a high school gym with a yeah. swimming pool. Yes, Gary. The answer to your question is about okay. water. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Goodman Theaters, the ripple, the wave that carried me home is running in the Owen Theater space through February twelfth. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're, you're welcome, welcome, Gary. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. January is sometimes thought to be a dead period for new movie releases. It's a good time to catch up on the movies you might have missed during the past 12 months. One that might have flown under your radar is the indie film I Love My Dad, which came out this past August. The premise? How far would you go to stay connected to a family member who was upset with you? Would you create a fake social media account and attempt to connect with said family member posing as a potential romantic partner in order to have some type of interaction? That might sound like a bridge too far for some of you, but the situation isn't totally implausible. The crazy scenario is the premise for the film I Love My Dad. The movie won the grand prize for the best narrative feature at South by Southwest last year. In the film Franklin, a 20-something who has just completed a stay at a treatment facility after attempting to commit suicide, cuts off all contact with his dad, including blocking him on social media. Devastated and desperate to reconnect, the father, Chuck, is struck by something a co-worker says about stalking an ex-girlfriend by creating a fake social media account to keep tabs on her. So Chuck creates a fake Facebook account using the likeness of a random waitress that he interacted with once and then friends his son as this fake person. Soon their online communication blooms into what Franklin believes is a romantic relationship and cringe-inducing comedy ensues. The film was written, directed, and stars James Morosini. He plays the Franklin character. Celebrated comedian Patton Oswalt plays his dad Chuck. The cast also includes several Chicago connections, including Crane High School alum Lil Rel Howery, actor Amy Landecker, her dad is radio personality John Records Landecker, and social media sensation Claudia Saluski. She grew up in Park Ridge. Saluski really plays two characters. She plays the waitress and then the imagined version of who Franklin believes he's communicating with online. We'll get into more of that later. I caught up with Morosini to talk about what it was like making his first feature-length film. We started our conversation by getting into the inspiration for I Love My Dad. Turns out it was pretty personal. About a decade ago, his dad catfished him in an attempt to reconnect. That's right. Yeah, when I was about 20, my dad and I got in a big fight, and I decided to just cut him out of my life, block him on Facebook. Just, just you know, it was an overreaction at the time, but... I was going through some stuff and he was really worried about me and I wouldn't talk with him about any of it. And I got home one day and this really pretty girl had sent me a friend request online and I was very excited. She had all these amazing pictures, had all the same interests as me. And, uh, and then it turned out to be my dad 
And, uh, and this story was born. So I think I, I read something that that incident with your dad took place when you were in your early 20s. So then just over the, the past several years, is it something you've been thinking about? Was the idea to turn that into a script for a, a feature length film something that was clear to you right away? It, it wasn't until probably I, I was I was probably like 19 or 20 at the time, but it, it was it, it took, you know, it was probably a decade until I was like, Oh, that would be a really good idea to make a movie uh, of this because it it kind of combines weirdness and heart in a way that really interests me. So you play a version of yourself in the film. The Franklin character isn't uh, you exactly, and then Pat Oswalt plays the the father Chuck. Just curious, uh, when you were writing this, how much of the Chuck character is based on your real dad? I think I took, you know, there are some similarities, but um, my dad in real life was a lot more present than Chuck is for Franklin. And, you know, I, I but but the relationship is very similar in a, a lot of ways. A, an earlier version of our relationship, I think he and I are on really good terms now, but I, I really wanted to explore that father-son relationship and and kind of integrate the emotional truth of, of my experience with my dad throughout. The film does a, a great job exploring the realities of modern day communication, especially as it relates to how romantic partnerships sometimes form these days. Obviously, there's a weird twist uh, in your film because Franklin believes he's talking with a woman named Becca, but he's actually texting with his dad. And that's where the cringe-inducing comedy comes in. Was that a challenge when you were writing the script, making sure it was funny, but trying to make sure you don't lose the audience because it's too gross or cringy? I wanted to tell a story that was both really sincere and then also kind of sarcastic at the same time. And I felt... Like it would be cringier and funnier if we were also really emotionally invested in the characters and could kind of see ourselves in certain characters. And, and we were kind of forced to ask ourselves, what would we do in this situation? And there really weren't any great answers. I, I think that's where a lot of the discomfort comedy comes in in this film. I would imagine then a key is just setting the right tone. Yeah, I, I wanted to make it feel grounded uh, the whole time, even when it gets really crazy and heightened. I, I wanted to feel I wanted it to still feel realistic throughout. So we talked about the the online messaging, and I also want to highlight that you did something really interesting in how you depicted it on screen because you know we've seen TV shows and movies now incorporate you know digital messaging, and sometimes you'll see texts appear on screen, or you'll get to see the character holding their phone, and you can see what they're typing. Uh, but you did something interesting rather than than do something like that. When two characters were communicating via text or messaging, they actually shared the the same physical space as if they were having a, a conversation together. Did you have that idea from the very beginning, or did that come about gradually as you worked on the script? Yeah, you know that was really key for me in being able to tell this story. I knew I didn't want audiences to just be, you know, we're all we're all on our phones for most of our days. I know I am, and so I when you go to see a movie, that's kind of an opportunity to step away from your phone. So I didn't want to subject audiences to two hours of more phone time. And when you're talking to someone online or texting them or whatever, it often kind of feels like they're right there with you. And so I just figured, well, what if they are, what if they are literally materializing in, in spaces and, and that would allow us uh, to to capture those conversations more cinematically than just you know back and forth on a phone. 
If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking to James Morosini, the writer, director, and co-star of the new comedy, I Love My Dad. Let's listen to a, a clip from the film. In this scene, Chuck, played by Patton Oswalt, convinces his girlfriend, played by Rachel Dratch, to pose as the fictional Becca on the phone in order to keep his ruse with his son going. Is this... Franklin? Is, is this a good time? Yeah, I was just... Yeah, sorry, I, I, was, I was literally just... In the middle, uh, uh, yeah, what's going on? Uh, how's your day going? Pretty good, how's it going with you? What are you wearing? Just sweatpants and a uh, red sock shirt. Uh, what, what about you? Just a dress. Oh, awesome. No panties. Sorry? Just got out of the shower. Hopefully you did your laundry so that there are clean towels. Mm. Your voice is sexy. I'm actually not good on the phone, uh, to be totally honest. Me neither. Do you want to just meet in person? Sure, I'd love to. <laughs> Sounds great. See you soon. That was Rachel Dratch and James Morosini in a scene from I Love My Dad. And you could hear Patton Oswalt making exasperated grunting noises in the background. Those three are part of a tremendous cast that helped bring Morosini's script to life. I've been a fan of Patton's for as long as I can remember. And he, I knew he had the right comedic sensibility and, and just has a big heart. And, and so I knew he'd be perfect for Chuck. And then uh, Claudia Saluski auditioned for the film and just blew me away. She has this kind of, she's just magnetic and, and has this incredible ability to make everything she does on screen feel very real and, 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 and uh, just really captured my attention directorially. Um, and then the other actors, you know, Lil Rel and Rachel, I, I liked the idea of having these comedic voices calling Chuck out throughout the movie and saying what we as an audience wish we could say to Chuck. And then also giving Chuck the opportunity to defend himself and defend what he's doing against basically the audience. Right. Um, and then, you know, we also had the great Amy Landecker who is from uh, Chicago and, and just, I've, I've been a fan of her acting for forever. And Rachel Dratch is, you know, one of my favorite people from Saturday night live and just, is so smart and funny. And uh, I was really thrilled that she was right for this part. Uh, Ricky Velez also has a part at the end of the movie. He's an amazing stand-up comic. So the first time you watched it in a, a theater with other people, were you holding your breath to see how they would react in, in some of the parts you knew that were coming up? Yeah. I mean, I, there, there's a, there are a few moments in the movie where the best thing that's happening to one character is the worst thing that's happening. <laughs> so it, it, it takes people really high and really low uh, very quickly. And, and those moments are, are just so fun to watch with a crowd. So what did your dad think of the final version of the film? So my dad and I saw it. Uh, he saw it for the first time at South by with an audience of 600 people 
which was a pretty spectacular moment. Um, I was really nervous. I, I was hoping that he'd dig it. And and he ultimately really did and and was very moved by the movie. I think it made him extremely uncomfortable, which was <laughs> uh, which was interesting. But he has a similar sense of humor and so was able to he, he kind of tipped his hat to me. And this movie is a, in a weird way, me catfishing him back in a, in a different <laughs> way. I kind of think about it in that sense. Yeah. I really, I love the film. James, I really appreciate you taking time to, to talk with me. Best of luck with everything. Oh, thank you so much, man. It was great to meet you. That was James Morosini, the writer, director, and co-star of the comedy I Love My Dad. It's currently available to watch for free on Hulu or to rent on most video-on-demand platforms. I'm Gary Zydek, you're listening to the Arts Section. A new play imagines what a young Andy Warhol might have been like before he became a pop culture icon. Glen Ellen-based Buffalo Theater Ensemble is presenting Andy Warhol's Tomato for a month-long run that starts Thursday at the Mackinac Arts Center. The play serves as a prelude of sorts to the Cleve Carney Museum of Art's upcoming exhibition, Andy Warhol, Portfolios, A Life in Pop, which opens on June 3rd. Andy Warhol's Tomato is set in 1946, when the still-finding-himself 18-year-old artist wakes up in the basement of a working-class Pittsburgh bar and starts a quasi-friendship with the establishment's owner. I recently caught up with the play's director, Steve Scott. The longtime Goodman Theater associate producer and freelance director has collaborated with Buffalo Theater several times over the past couple of decades, but it was Scott's own personal interest in Warhol that attracted him to this production. I've done a number of shows for the Buffalo Theater Ensemble in the past, like, 20 years. So I was well familiar with the company and with the artistic director, uh, Connie Kennedy Howard. And I've always loved working there. So whenever she calls and has a project, I think, well, that would be good. But when she called uh, with this, I had just finished watching the six-part documentary on Andy Warhol's Diaries. And Warhol is a figure that's always fascinated me for a number of reasons. He's so enigmatic, and you never were quite sure what he was thinking or doing. <laughs> but he was so influential in the development of the, of the art world that we have today and in the development of contemporary culture on, in many ways. So I've been fascinated with him. And I read this play, and, you know, it's based on an apocryphal story of Andy Warhol uh, before, uh, when he was Andy Warhola before he went off to New York <laughs> and fame and fashion, uh, fame and fortune. And it kind of fascinated me. What was Andy like before he was Andy Warhol? This playwright has done a really good job of kind of assimilating some of the things that we knew uh, or that we know about Andy and what he became and uh, talking to a number of people who knew Andy when he was growing up and all of that, putting together a picture of what this kid was like. And I, I just found that really kind of enticing. So I thought, yeah, sure, sign me up. This will be fun. <laughs> you said you have a, a personal uh, interest in Warhol for a, a number of reasons. Uh, off mic, we were talking, so you're from Pittsburgh. I, I was born in Pittsburgh. My parents moved to Kansas City when I was six. Oh, okay. But I still count Pittsburgh as my hometown because Kansas it's more more interesting than Kansas City. I'm afraid <laughs> I apologize to any Kansas City dwellers out there, but that's the way I feel. Just to make it clear for the audience, this is uh, 
It's fiction. It's kind of like historical it, it, fiction. Yeah, as I say, it was an apocryphal story that the playwright heard from somebody about, you know, this guy said, well, I had an uncle who owned a bar out in Homestead, Pennsylvania, and he met Andy Warhol when he was, uh, when Andy was a teenager. And nobody's sure whether that was right or not. But it was a, it was an interesting conjecture. And it's interesting to kind of posit what would have happened if this very odd young man who was quite obviously gay at a time when that was not uh, permitted, especially in that part of the country, met this bar owner who could not have been more opposite Mm -hmm. of him. Uh, Kind of big, burly, kind of rough, that sort of thing. But through the course of the play, you find out some things that kind of bind them together. Uh, A shared interest in art. It turns out that the uh, bar owner is a closet writer and is working on a number of things. And so they, they clash a lot and they don't agree on a lot of things at first. They find a bond. And it's a very, it's a really kind of fascinating story of two absolute op- opposites kind of coming together, which I think is applicable to almost anybody in this world because, you know, we're in a world that's very divided and we look at the opposites and think, oh my God, well, sure. I don't want to talk to them. And it's kind of comforting to see that these people can find common ground. You mentioned uh, at a time when, you know, maybe Andy Warhol uh, would have stood out even more. So it's set in 1946. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but it was right after World War II. Uh, and um, the whole idea of being different was kind of anathema to America at that point, because after the war, everybody wanted to kind of get back to normal and everybody kind of wanted to be kind of like everybody else and all of that sort of stuff. And especially if you were, if you were odd and effeminate and an artist, there was very little place for you uh, in America other than in big cities like New York, which is why he felt that he had to leave Pittsburgh and, and move to New York. Uh, and I got to say, I'm, I'm gay, and as a gay man growing up in the 60s and 70s, Andy Warhol was kind of this beacon for me because I was, you know, in a suburb of Kansas City, f- figuring that I was the only one of uh, around. And then when I would read, you know, in the Village Voice or the East Village Other, which was a counterculture newspaper, or later on in Interview Magazine. Uh, what Andy was doing and saying and the kinds of people he attracted and that sort of thing, I thought, wow, that th- th- I'm, I'm not that odd, but there's a place for me somewhere if I can find it. So he was kind of an inspiring figure from that point of view, too. Sure, sure. And this is a relatively new play I read. I think it premiered in 2019. Right, right. And I think this is only the third or fourth production of it. So, yeah. You know, I think it did very well in its first uh, outings, but it had the curse of opening on the eve of COVID when, you know, doing plays was kind of the, the furthest thing from anybody's mind. So hopefully now that theater is coming back, uh, more people will discover this. And as Andy Warhol becomes more and more important in our society, uh, the interest in Andy Warhol, which I think is kind of growing. It's very interesting that in Chicago, we're doing Andy uh, Warhol's Tomato. 
Northlight Theater is doing More Hole in Iran. Right. Yeah. And there's a play in New York right now about the uh, relationship with, with Andy Warhol and Basquiat, a young artist. Right. So for some reason, he's kind of on the at the top of people's consciousness now. Uh, so maybe that bodes well for this play and others like it. Right, right. Does that uh, affect you having directed so many different productions? Uh, there are certain uh, works that maybe audiences are more familiar with. This is something that's going to be new to almost everyone who comes to see it. So does that change your process at all? Not really. I kind of approach everything I do pretty much the same way. I mean, what... What I really try to focus on uh, in any play are the relationships between characters. Uh, And I am really drawn to plays that have interesting, unusual, sometimes unpredictable characters and trying to figure out what, what makes them tick. You know, and and what the playwright gives you, and then what you kind of make up on your own, and that sort of stuff. So I I, I really look for relationship-driven plays, and I treat Shakespeare and Neil Simon kind of the same. I mean, there are different challenges in terms of the technicalities of the script, and language, and humor, or whatever. But basically, all plays are about people in conflict and trying to figure out who those people are and why they're in conflict uh, is fascinating to me. You know, in another life, I might have been a psychologist, but I think this is more fun. <laughs> and here, really, it's uh, it's just the two characters on stage the whole Absolutely, time. yeah. You know, it's, it's not a terribly long play. It runs about 90 minutes, but there's a lot in it. And most plays have four or five people in them, and so they kind of spread the uh, the workload around. When there's just two of them, they're both on stage literally for the entire play. And that's a lot. That's a, it's a, a lot to deal with. They're both doing extremely well. Uh, but uh, but it, they spend a lot of energy in those 90 minutes. So for the Andy Warhol character, I was thinking about not a lot of people I've seen. There was a movie called Basquiat that yes. came out in— Okay, yeah. you're familiar. I think Jeffrey oh, yeah. Wright plays Basquiat, and then David Bowie plays Warhol. Let's listen to a clip from the 1996 movie Basquiat. And this scene features David Bowie as Andy Warhol, and he's meeting uh, Basquiat for the first time. Gee, ignorant art, no. Yeah, you know, like stupid, like ridiculous, crummy art. Wow, that sounds good. That's new. Ten bucks. Gee, it didn't work very much on these. I can give you like five. Come on, Bruno, you're rich. Maybe you should talk to Bruno. You, you don't even work on your stuff? No, it's not how much you work on something that matters. It's how much you get for them. I can get ten. These are great, Bruno. Maybe I'll take two. I'll take, um... Let me see these. I'll take this one and... I don't know. Bruno, can I borrow some money? Yeah. Oh, let me look at those, Bruno. Yeah, but they're mine now, Andy. Huh? Sure, they're yours, Bruno. Everything good's yours. I've read that people that knew Warhol said that that was like the best portrayal of Warhol they've ever seen. And there's a a number of options out there because Warhol has been a, a character in a number of films. So I'm curious, as the, a director, is there something you say to the, the actor who's taking on that role of Warhol? You can't, you can't really do an imitation. I mean, David Bowie was brilliant in that movie because David Bowie, I think, understood the core of who Andy Warhol was. And you can kind of put on the affectations of 
how he spoke and how he stood and all of that. Warhol, at a younger age, we really have no idea. We have some pictures of what he was like in high school. Interestingly enough, the young man that I cast, uh, Alexander Wisniewski, is a student at the, the college. But unbeknownst to me, he had already been hired by the people at the, uh, at the museum to impersonate Andy Warhol at fundraising events. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't know this until, I, th I think, about a week ago. And by the time we started rehearsal, he had already done so much research on who Warhol was and all of that and watched a lot of film about him. And so he, he kind of had a lot of that down uh, when we started. So I didn't really have to say, okay, talk like this now. Because uh, he already had it. And, and, and it's kind of Warhol kind of as seen through the prism of, uh, of Alexander. It's his interpretation of who Warhol is. And, and I'm not that, I don't care that much about doing an exact replica. I don't think that's very interesting. I think it's more interesting to kind of get at the inside and see how the actor does that. So that's what we've been focusing on. Yeah. You already kind of touched on from your own personal experience what Andy Warhol meant to you. Uh, he's ubiquitous. Every person has heard of him, at least. Some yes. have a yeah. closer connection than others. So for something like this, do you have hopes for what the audience takes away, or do you think about that? I do, but I, you know, to a certain extent, the audience will take away what they take away. Uh, you know, if you do your job well and, and keep the audience engaged, then they'll figure out what they liked about the play or what they felt about the play or whatever. Beyond kind of what I call the people magazine factor of getting to know so, uh, in some way a famous figure before he was famous, which is a lot of fun. And, and, the, and the playwright puts a lot of kind of shadows of, uh, uh, foreshadows of things coming down the road, uh, which, which are all kind of interesting. But I really do think uh, the crux of the play for me is, is, is this relationship and how do you deal with someone who is so outrageously unlike yourself, especially when you're kind of thrown together in a, in a situation. How do you parse that out and how do you, what do you do? How do you find out a way not to just demonize the other because of what he appears to be. Uh, how do you kind of go beneath that? And I, you know, I can't think of any more important topic right now that the theater can deal with is how do we deal with people who aren't like us? Which is what most plays are about. Most plays are about somebody who is estranged from society. But right now we really need that uh, because we look at the people who don't agree with us not just as, well, they don't agree with me. We look at them as evil, and that's not going to help. So hopefully that will uh, come out of uh, all of this. Steve, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. My pleasure too, Gary. Thank you. That's Steve Scott. He's the director of Buffalo Theater Ensemble's upcoming production of Andy Warhol's Tomato. It opens on Thursday, February 2nd, and will run through March 5th. You can find ticket info at atthemac.org, and the Cleve Carney Museum of Art's Warhol exhibit is set to open in early June. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section, but remember you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. 
Until then, I hope you have a great week. Hope you're staying warm this morning. Happy birthday, Julian. Thanks for listening. 